Well, good morning. My name is Peter Milliken, and uh, some of you uh, were here last week, and you know who I am, but there's also some uh, new faces this week and people who weren't here last week. So uh, I just want to reintroduce myself a little bit before we get into the message this morning. Uh, a few things about me. I moved to Toowoomba in 1998, grade five, with my family and attended uh, COC, which is now Highlands. Uh, I'm a Broncos supporter, so I've been in persecution for 16 years now, uh, since the mighty premiership in 06. And uh, so pray for me, pray for our team. Uh, I used to be a teacher. I taught um, at the school that I went to, went back there and taught grade 8 and 9 maths and science, and then I realized I hate kids, so I left. No, that's not true. I hated the parents. They were the ones that, no, I'm kidding. I just didn't want to teach maths and science anymore. I hated maths and science. Oh, I didn't even hate that. I just wasn't passionate about, about it. So I, uh, what I was really passionate about was teaching the Bible. And so I left uh, Australian Shores and I went over to the States and uh, did a degree in Bible and theology. And um, I went over twice, actually, because um, I just, you know, not very smart. And so I had to go twice. And uh, that's where I met my wife, Karen. We've been married for 18 months. And so uh, we, we moved here about uh, Christmas last year, and I, I joined staff about three, four months ago, and just loving our time here. We love the church, and we've loved getting to know uh, everyone here. So that's that's me. Um, I hope uh, that last week was uh, a good sermon for you. Um, I hope I didn't put you to sleep. I know some of you listened because uh, midweek I was talking with a couple, and uh, they were mentioning the pastor's names. And they got it right. They said, Pete, Tom, Pete. And so, you know, I know someone out there was listening. Um, I hope that wasn't the only thing you took away from last week. But if it was, that's okay. That's a good thing. Um, but this morning, uh, we're going to carry on with our, our series as we lead into Easter. And I want to remind you, if you were here last week or if you weren't here last week, just what we covered, what we talked about. Uh, we talked about Jesus fulfilling the law. And we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. And we saw that he was the only one who was able to live the perfect life. He was the only one that was able to live a righteous life. And that when we look at the commands and the law and the requirement to get into the kingdom of heaven, the requirement is perfection. And uh, if you're anything like me, and as we're going through the different commands, you realize that we're in a lot of trouble. We're not going to live up to that. We can't live up to that. And we saw that the law, in fact, was never meant to be able to be obeyed by us. In fact, it was a tutor, it was a teacher to point to the one who can, and that was Jesus. And so uh, we recognize that he's righteous and we're not, but if we ask him for his righteousness, he gives it to us. And that is how we will be presented blameless before our Heavenly Father, based on Christ's righteousness and not our own. And uh, many of us know that message, that might not have been new to us, but uh, it's important to revisit, but um, it's, it's the essence of the gospel. We may have even heard it before, and we recognize our deficiency, and we've come to a saving faith in Christ. But then what normally happens is we ask the question, well, do I still have to do any of those things? Like if Christ has paid for it all, and I get His righteousness, why do I have to keep doing the commands of the New Testament? Why do I even have to try uh, to be a good person? 
Why do I have to do these things that I don't want to do? I mean, if Jesus has really paid for it all, do I just get a free pass all the way through and don't have to do anything? Um, Some of the questions that we might ask are things like, why do I have to be honest? Why do I have to come to church? Why why do I need to love my wife? Uh, This week, uh, my wife rang me up because uh, she'd got a flat tire in the car and uh, she's from the States and so she's learned to drive on the other side of the road, which is um, always fun. And uh, she'd hit a pothole and the tire burst. And so she rings me up in tears. I've g- she gave me permission to share this, by the way. And um, yeah, she, r- she rang me up in, in tears and saying, you know, I've busted a tire and can you help? And here I am, I'm at work, I've just got here, I'd already driven from our place in Top Camp, it's 20 minutes, it was high traffic, there were things to do at work, and uh, I had a sermon to prepare for, I had people who I had to work with, we had meetings, and I thought, well, why is this my responsibility? I, I, didn't, I didn't do this, right? I didn't drive into the pothole, you got yourself into this mess, you can get yourself out. And yet, the Bible calls me to sacrificially love my wife. And so, I was on the phone and I said, well, go to the bus stop, get on the bus. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) I said, you know, honey, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I'll change the tire when I get home. She's got a friend that can come and pick her up. You know, and... But, but I had to ask the question for a moment. Well, if Jesus has paid for it all, he's paid for my sins, he's paid for her sins, and why do I have to still obey? Why do I have to do the things that the Bible talks about if Jesus has paid it all? Why do I need to serve? Or the opposite of the negative, why can't I, why can't I steal things? Jesus has paid for it. I mean, if the government wasn't going to find out, why can't I lie on my tax return? Why do I have to go to community group? Have you seen some of the people in community group? Why do I need to do the things the New Testament commands us to? Well, I want to give you one reason today. It's not the sole reason, but I think it's the most important reason. Today, we're going to read Matthew 17. And I hope, I hope you're going to see Jesus in a way you might not have seen him before. So I chose this passage in Matthew as we continue our series because it shows Jesus in a way that we very rarely see him in the Gospels. And as we lead into Easter, I want us to see Jesus more clearly so we might understand the Gospel better, so we might understand the cross better than we already do. We're going to follow the account of Matthew and he writes, of three men that got to see an event in Jesus' life that no one else saw. I think it'll help us understand why we still want to do the things that the Bible teaches. We start in chapter 17 at the beginning, verse 1, it says, after six days. Now, as soon as you see that, you need to stop and realize that Matthew's giving us a contextual clue here. And we need to say, well, after, after six days of what? Right? And so you have to go back and, and see what came before. And see, Jesus in the previous section had been telling his disciples that he was going to suffer and he was going to die and he was going to be raised again on the third day, to which Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. 
And he says, this will never happen to you. And Jesus' famous response to Peter is, get behind me, Satan. And then he tells the disciples that anyone who wants to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he talks about the kingdom. And he says that there are some here who won't taste death until they see me coming in the glory of my Father. Verse 28, let's just jump back there for a sec. This is what he says. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming in his kingdom. Then we start chapter 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And here we are, six days after, there's three disciples. Jesus is going to give them a foretaste of the kingdom. Jesus takes Peter, takes James, and he takes John. This isn't rare for Jesus. They got to see things that other disciples didn't get to see. They were the first ones that he called at the beginning of the book. They'd been following him the longest. And so he leads them up this high mountain. This is not an aimless wander. Jesus specifically takes them up the mountain. He's leading them. He wants to show them something important. And so up the mountain they go. Now, what did we learn last week about the mountain? All right, when, when Matthew says they're going up a mountain, he is giving you a clue to what is going on here. You see, in the Old Testament, Moses used to go up the mountain to meet with God. And Matthew's trying to help us see something from the Old Testament. And so we need to go back and understand a little bit more about Moses. And so hang with me here, because if we don't understand Moses on the mountain in the Old Testament, we will never fully understand Jesus on the mountain in the New Testament. Okay, so we're just going to jump back for a minute and look at Moses. Who is Moses? Moses is the leader of the nation of Israel when they are in captivity under Egypt. And he is the leader of the nation when God delivers them out of slavery. And this is in the book of Exodus. You can read that. And, and what's going on in this book is the God of Israel is throwing down against Pharaoh and his gods in Egypt. And God sends plagues upon the Egyptians so that they might know that there is none like Yahweh. There is none like the God of Israel. And Pharaoh learns the hard way that there really is no match for the power of the God of Israel. And they let the Israelites go and God parts the Red Seas and they walk across on dry land. As they get to the other side, there's this song. It's called the Song of Moses that the Israelites sing. And chapter 15 of Exodus and verse 11, it says this, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Implied answer, no one. No one is like the God of Israel. And later in the book of Exodus, Moses goes up the mountain to meet God. 
In Exodus 24, he ascends and we read that a cloud covers the mountain. In verse 16, it tells us the glory of the Lord rested on the mountain and Moses enters into the midst of this cloud. And as the Israelites are watching from down below, they look up and they see and it looks as though the, the God has manifested himself as a consuming fire on the mountain. And it's this spectacle of bright lights as God reveals his glory. And as Moses continued to talk with God on the mountain, his face would shine. In Exodus 33, we read that he, he would reflect the glory of God. His face would be radiant as God would shine upon him. His face would reflect that and he would go to the people and his face would be radiant. You see, when God reveals his glory, his majesty, it appears as light. It is almost blinding, it's illuminating, it's radiant because he's showing us that he is unrivaled, he is unmatched, he is unparalleled. See, how else do you communicate to human beings who have eyes and ears that you are holy, that you are different, that you are other? You show them and they hear it and they see it. And there's brightness and there's fire and there's cloud. And they show that he is God and there is no one else beside him. But that was the mountain in Exodus with Moses back to the mountain in Matthew. That Jesus, he's taking his closest disciples up. The three of them, they go up the mountain they're by themselves, completely alone. And then we read in verse 2, without warning or lead up, it just says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Transfigured, it's another way of just, it's the word for transformed. Jesus' physical appearance alters into a light's display of radiance and glory, just like we've seen on the mountain in Exodus, his skin shining like the sun and in, in his clothes as white as light. Everything radiating from him. Verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Notice that the text does not describe them as shining or in unique appearance. Just Jesus shining alone. But Moses is there and Elijah, and we have to ask why these two? Why, why is it that these two show up on the mountain with Jesus? And it's probably because they represent the law and the prophets. Moses was the great leader that we've talked about, that God gave the law through to his people. Elijah, one of the most famous prophets that you can read about in 1 Kings, did miraculous works. They are witnesses to Jesus. Just as it says elsewhere that you search the Scriptures diligently 
but they speak of me. That he, he would be referring to the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are witnesses to him. And here Moses, Moses and Elijah stand and talk, and they are witnesses to Christ's uniqueness. And then Peter pipes up. Bless his soul. Verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So here we are on the mountain. Jesus has been transfigured. He's shining brightly. There is Old Testament saints on the mountain accompanying him. And Peter says, do you guys want some tents? Right? Does that sound out of place? What you need to know is there's a very really strong variety of marijuana. It grows next to the Sea of Galilee and the fishermen, very fond of it. And Peter's high. No, that's not what's going on. Peter actually knows what he's talking about. It's not so out of place. You see, in Zechariah 14, minor prophet, he's writing of the kingdom. And he writes that when the kingdom comes, this millennial kingdom, there's going to be a feast of booths. What is the feast of booths? The feast of booths was the yearly observation that went for a week where the people of Israel would go and they would live in huts, in tents. And it was the way that they would celebrate and recognize that God had rescued them out of Israel and he had protected and provided for them while they wandered in the wilderness. And they lived in temporary accommodation as they moved around. And so God instructed his people that every year you will uh, observe the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, it's also called. And so when uh, Zechariah is writing, he's talking of the kingdom and he says there's going to be feasts of booths in the kingdom. And the nations will come and they will observe the feasts of booths in Jerusalem. And so when Peter sees that Christ is illuminating and radiating and the Old Testament saints are coming, he assumes the kingdom's here. The kingdom is here. Jesus is going to bring it in. Let's do the feasts of booths. It's only right. And just as he says that, we read in verse 5, he was still speaking when, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is not the first time we've heard these words in the book of Matthew. Back at Jesus' baptism in chapter 3, these same words are spoken from a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. See, God confirms that Jesus is His Son. And when He calls Him His Son, it doesn't mean that He gave birth to Him, right? There's not, there's not a physical birth going on here. What He's saying is that He declares Him to be identical in nature and essence to Him that He represents the Father exactly, and that this is pleasing to the Father. 
Can you imagine just being there on the mountain, hearing those words? We're taken into the inner relationship of two members of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, as we see their mutual commitment and love. Some of you can't relate to that. Some of you didn't have a good father. He's never told you that he's pleased with you. Maybe he's never told you that he loves you. Maybe he doesn't even see you like a son or a daughter. And you need to know this morning that when you believe in Christ, you're adopted into the family. And you have a heavenly father who loves you. And he says you're precious. The Father approves of everything that Jesus says and does. And everything that Jesus says and does is in perfect accordance with the Father's will and plan. And He's not just a son. He's, he calls Him His beloved son. A relationship based on mutual love and commitment and unity. Almighty God, He comes to the mountain in a cloud and He tells His disciple, Jesus is God. He has the physical appearance, the testimony of Moses and Elijah who point toward him, and now the Father verbally confirms Jesus is the Son of God. And then he says to the disciples, listen to him. I don't know if they heard that at first, because in Verse 6, it says, When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. You see, the disciples hear this voice and they fall on their faces. There is a heavenly scene and the words of Almighty God, it's too much. They can't handle it. They fall on the ground. They're they're, They're terrified. They're in fear for when you come face to face with God. It shakes you to the core. the next thing they feel is a hand. It's the touch of a hand. It's, it's a human hand. It's the hand of a man, but he's not just a man. Verse 7. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their, their eyes... They saw no one but Jesus only. There are only two times in the book of Matthew that Jesus actually comes to someone. All throughout the book and all throughout his life, people are coming to Jesus. They're asking him questions. They're begging for miracles. They want to see a sign. They're coming to Jesus. And it's only here and in 28.18 after the resurrection that Jesus comes to someone. Both supernatural events. And here the disciples are scared and there's a, there's a hand on the shoulder. And comforting words, have no fear. And as they look up, there is only Jesus. Moses and Elijah have gone. The cloud has gone. Jesus is no longer shining. 
He's by himself again. You see, the text tells us he, he started alone. And, and he finished alone. Because there's no one else to compare him to anymore. Because he stands alone. He stands alone as the son of God. And they leave the mountain and they make their way back down. And I'm sure they were more sure of Jesus than ever before. That he is the one to bring the kingdom. He is the king. He is the one who will reign and who will rule. And he alone is uniquely qualified, distinctively divine, exclusively righteous with unrivaled authority. But the king's physical reign and rule on earth is not yet. Because the king hasn't gone to the cross yet. You see, before there is a kingdom, there has to be a cross. There is a debt to be paid. It's our debt that we've accrued from our sin. It's our punishment that we rightly deserve. And the king is going to take our place, and in return, we get his righteousness. And on Friday, you will see the king, but he will not be on the mountain. He will be on the cross. You'll see the king not wearing dazzling white garments, but naked and bare. You'll see the king. His skin will not be radiating like the sun. It will be bruised and bloodied. You'll see the king not with his closest friends by his side, but hanging between two criminals. You'll see the king not looking like a king, but don't be fooled. He is the king. And he's a good king. You, know, you want to know why I think he only takes three up the mountain to see this? To see the kingdom. And then as they come down, you can read on that he tells them, don't tell anyone about this until after the resurrection. I think he only takes three because if he took more and the people saw him as what Peter, James and John saw, they would have never crucified him. Who can stand against that kind of power, that majesty, that authority? They would have been scared to lay a hand on him. They'd probably be like Peter. They'd want the kingdom right there, right then. Bring it in. But Jesus is not operating by their agenda. He's not operating by your agenda. He is operating by his father's agenda. And his agenda is salvation to all who believe. And one day the son will bring in the kingdom and he will be the king. And only those who recognize him as the son of God will enter. This is our king. He alone is worthy to be listened to. You know, the father could have said a variety of things on the mountain that day. He could have said to the disciples, bow down. 
before him. Kiss his feet. Bring him food and drink and the robe. But that's not what he says. He says, listen. Listen to him. Listen to my son. You see, as before Jesus headed up the mountain, as, as we read, he says some really hard things. Things like, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. If you want to save your life, you need to, you need to lose it. If you want to live, you have to die to yourself. Now, why would I ever do that? Why would I want to give up something I desire? Only if I've seen the King go to the cross. Only if I know there's a kingdom coming after this. Only if I've seen the glory of God radiating in a man. Because he's God. Friends, when we see Jesus for who he really is, we'll want to be like him. We'll listen to him. And we'll worship him. You know, I think our, our understanding of a king can be misconstrued sometimes. When we think about kings, we think about royal robes and heavy golden crowns and a large throne and red carpet and royal servants and eating the best food while others go hungry. We think of the wars that were fought and how the king would be away from the battle, protected and safe. We look at today's society and we look at Windsor Castle and all the frivolities and tradition and royalty that goes with that, or we look at the drama of the royal family and shake our heads as Prince What's-His-Face and Megan do their thing. You see, I think we get a, a mixed understanding of what it means to be a king. I mean, we don't really even have, we don't have a king in Australia And then we look at our government and we see corruption at times and people who are willing to take bribes and, and, and do things on the side for money or manipulate for votes or do, do shady deals. But Jesus is a king not like those kings, not like those leaders. He's, he's like Maximus out of Gladiator, right? Can't get out of a sermon without a good movie illustration. You see, in Gladiator, and I don't necessarily recommend it, it's very violent. In Gladiator, Maximus leads as a general from the front. He's in the battle with his men. He's fighting side by side with them. He goes in first. And his army loves him and they respect him. And... 
at the beginning of the movie, as the Caesar is, is dying and he knows he's dying, he, he wants to give the leadership to Maximus, the general. And he sums up why by saying, he says, you command the loyalty of your army. See, our king is like that. He, he leads from the front. He's the first to go to the cross. He's the first to lay down his life. And when we see the king for who he really is and what he's really done, there is no teaching too hard. There is nothing he can ask that is too much. So when we ask the question, why? It's not a bad question. But the more significant question is, who? Who? See, I think we're asking the wrong question. When, when Peter and James and John, they come down the mountain and they, they see Jesus and they get that preview of the kingdom and they see him on the cross and then they see him resurrected from the dead, I don't think they're asking why. I think they've seen him for who he truly is. And they were changed forever. See, because friends, when, when you see Jesus for who he truly is, you don't ask why. Because he changes you. And I just want you to see Jesus this morning. In a way, maybe you've never seen him before as the king. When we see him as the king, there's no command too great. And he's worthy of our loyalty and our allegiance. And when we read the commands of the New Testament, we realize they're just ways to imitate our Savior. To die to self so that you might experience life. And I think the three on the mountain got it. I think they were changed forever. See, Peter, he went on to play a significant role in the early church. We read about that in Acts and persecuted and thrown in prison and preaching against uh, the Jewish leaders that he used to be scared of. And we don't, it's not written in Scripture what happened to him, but church history holds that Peter got sentenced to crucifixion. And he begged his crucifiers that they might crucify him upside down. Because he wasn't worthy to die the same death as Christ. You see, Peter saw that we must imitate him, but he is so different. He is unique. John writes his gospel, and he writes the three letters in the New Testament and Revelation. And early church history points to him being martyred at the late age of 100 in Ephesus. And James, we don't hear much from. James is, this is not the James that we read in uh, the Bible that has a, a book there. This is James, son of Zebedee. We have no word from his pen, no words that he spoke on his own. He seemed pretty content just to be a disciple. Got no record of him seeking fame or power or a great name. Just two verses in the book of Acts, chapter 12. Verse 12, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, 
the brother of John, with the sword. See, I think the three on the mountain that day, they saw and they heard things that they never forgot. Those thunderous words were ringing in their ears their whole life. Listen to him. Especially when he said, if you want to save your life, first you must lose it. If you want to come after me, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. So who is he to you? Is he a far away being who you're reminded of occasionally? Is he the angel on your shoulder telling you these are the things you should and shouldn't do? Is he one you used to know and love? Or is he the king on the mountain who went to the cross before the kingdom and he has your allegiance? Do you see him? Do you really see him for who he really is? Because if you do, you will listen to him. So wrap up, I want to read some words from John, the, the witness on the mountain. He writes in his letter, 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, see what he calls us? Beloved. The same title the father called his son. We're in the family. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. I hope you've seen him this morning. I hope you see the Savior in a way you've never seen him before. As the King who went to the cross. We should listen to him. Let's pray as the band make their way up. Our Father, we confess that we sometimes we don't see Jesus as we should. But Lord, you have revealed him to us in your word. And so I thank you this morning for Matthew 17, for those faithful witnesses that write down the time they went up the mountain. And they saw your son as the king who will bring in the kingdom. Help us to believe that. Help us to see Jesus as he rightly is. Lord, as we live in this delay period where the kingdom has not come in its entirety, in its fulfillment, help us to live in light of a king that's coming, in light of a kingdom that's coming. that we would be willing to follow our King, to lay down our own life as He did for us. Help us to die to ourselves. 
Help us to die to our desires that are contrary to you and your glory and your holiness. We thank you for what Jesus did, not only only on the mountain, but on the cross. I pray this Friday we would remember that and see that in a new way, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our eyes to the radiance and the glory of your Son.